0: My name is Ricky Day, and this is Nothing to Lose But Yourself. What's going on, everybody? Welcome again welcome 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 i hope you are having an amazing day uh, wherever you are i am in new york city and it is beautiful outside and as soon as i finish recording this i'm running outside uh, to get me a little bit of this spring once again my name is ricky day and this is the podcast nothing to lose but yourself and uh, i'm so grateful that you guys stopped by today i'm so glad and grateful that you listen and that you chime in and you tune in and you're emailing me and DMing me. And most importantly, that you are sharing this with your friends and your family and and people who you think can benefit from some of these amazing conversations with these dynamic and amazing human beings. Well, today's episode is one I'm excited about. I think it's an important one. In this episode today, I chat with Hugh Love, PhD. Uh, He's a New York-based psychologist and Dr. Love and I engage in a wide-ranging conversation about identity and how it's formed and shaped and in the process uh, we will demystify psychology and therapy and hopefully encourage those who may benefit from therapy to consider it. I mean I even include a conversation with him where we talk about what to expect when you walk into uh, a therapist's office for the first time and you engage in a session. Uh, We also spend some time chatting about masculinity, uh, the stigma around mental health and the black community, especially, but in all communities. Also, we chat about his childhood in Memphis, Tennessee, being a black man in a profession where there are tragically few African-Americans and people of color at all. And he shares strategies for coping with the stress and anxiety generated by the complicated and often traumatic inducing times that we live in. I mean, we are living in some crazy times and he's going to help us with some tools to cope and hope to ultimately to heal during these times. So, again, I am grateful that you guys are joining us today and I encourage you now to sit back and relax, to enjoy your morning drive, your afternoon commute, your glass of wine. whatever it is you are doing to unwind I'm just glad you're taking us with you and I want you to enjoy that enjoy this conversation with Dr. Hugh Love PhD all about identity Well, as I shared, my guest today is, uh, I think, an important one because it's a conversation that we all need to have, a conversation about our mental health, about how, I, how identity is formed and all those important uh, mental uh, health uh, issues. Uh, and so our guest today is Dr. Hugh Love, PhD. Don't you love that? It has a sound to it. Hugh Love, Dr. Love, uh, he's born in Memphis, Tennessee, a son of a Baptist minister and a postal worker, or his father, and a state clerical worker, his mother. Uh, Dr. Love is the youngest of six children, and while in high school, he was a band member and a track athlete. Uh, he's also significantly involved in the Memphis NAACP Youth Council, uh, the Build Bridge Builders Program, and ministries at his home church. Uh, he's a graduate of Memphis Central High School, and then he attended the Old, good old Morehouse College in Atlanta uh, and graduated with a B.A. Uh, in business administration and marketing. Uh, he also ob- obtained his M.A. in counseling for mental health and wellness from New York University. And Dr. Love is, well, we won't hold this against him, but he's a Kappa Alpha Psi fraternity member. Uh, all jokes aside, I'm not, I'm not a frat, so I really have no, no dog in that race. But uh, he, uh, Dr. Love completed his doctoral studies at Fordham University, obtaining his Ph.D. uh, in school psychology. Uh, His research interests primarily center on masculinity, gender, sexuality, particularly among black men and boys. And Dr. Love's dissertation entitled Potential Moderators of Masculinity, Ideology, and Health Risk in College Black Men explored the correlation between adherence to traditional masculine norms and health outcomes in a sample of young black men also focusing on potential protective factors so there's a lot to unpack there a lot that i think is going to be beneficial to each of you and that is why we've invited him to be on the show welcome to the show uh dr hula what's up man how are you
1: I am doing well. Thank you. That is probably the longest bio that I've heard of myself in so long, but I'll take it. Um, So I'm happy to be here. So I'm happy to have this discussion.
0: I'm happy to have you here, man. So how have uh, how have we been living in some unprecedented times for the past few years, and especially the past 12 to 14 months? How have you personally been coping and making it through these crazy times?
1: Oh, it's a roller coaster ride, man. Um, you know, I am a human just like anybody else, and no amount of degrees or anything of that nature um fully protects you from this kind of unknown pandemic situation where we just kind of got blindsided. So myself, I've just been, you know, I I try to practice what I preach. Um and so What I've been doing is taking it one day at a time, one month at a time, knowing that, you know, things that I was adjusted to at the beginning of the pandemic didn't hold through, didn't hold true six months into the pandemic and may not hold true nine months into the pandemic. So I've had to maintain that flexibility to pivot um, and really recognize the things that are in my control and just healthy habits, work out when I can, eat good. Try not to eat too poorly. Um, you know, try to keep connections with people, even if it's from a distance. So, you know, it's a daily, it's a monthly, weekly, daily struggle to just make sure I stay balanced. Yeah, I, I can only imagine it's been that way for me. I started off uh,
0: grateful and doing well and working from home and still employed and safe. And I was like, all right, I'm good. It's, you know, time out. I'm good with this. I, I like some time to myself. But as it's dragged on, and people who I know and love started passing away, and you know these things really kind of turned pretty quickly, uh, and it can be very challenging. Um, you know, this is an important conversation I think we're going to have today. I don't think it has to be all super deep and serious the entire time. We can have fun too, but it's an important conversation. Uh, and particularly cause I'm, you know, I do the podcast out of service to other people, to humanity, uh, and, and unpacking the power of loving yourself and embracing yourself and your identity. Um, but also just figuring out ways to to do that based on other people's experiences and watching how other people have made it through life Mm -hmm. and and coped. Uh, But before we get too deeply in the conversation, I wanted to mystify and uh, define some things so that we're all on the same page about what we're talking about. So let's start with the basics. Can you kind of define for folks who are listening what psychology actually is, whatever that basic definition of what
1: psychology is? If you really just want to boil down what psychology is, it is the study of behavior and the mind. Um, it's not even the like some people like to use the word the study of human behavior, but there are psychologists who specifically study animal behavior. And so it is literally just the study of behavior and the mind that's usually applied to human beings. Um, but if you really boil it down to its essence, that's what it is.
0: And see, that's important because I don't think people necessarily knew that. Um, And then what exactly is therapy? Explain what therapy is. Define what therapy is.
1: I think different people would define therapy differently, but it is usually, you know, most commonly defined as a relationship between um, a behavioral health professional and an individual family or group um, in which the individual, family, or group engages in exploration of whatever brought the person to therapy. And so there's really not this really circumscribed, very specific definition of therapy other than this relate, this relationship between the entity seeking therapy and the party providing the therapy, with the ultimate goal of um, creating or, or or shaping a better life for another individual.
0: Okay. So therapy is not really about, or always about something being quote unquote wrong or there being an issue. It's really about understanding and unpacking some behaviors and looking at ways to enhance and, and make your life better with a professional who's trained to help you do that.
1: Is that fair? It doesn't mean that, uh, therapy doesn't mean that you're crazy. Um, therapy doesn't mean that you, you know, have some significant diagnosis um, that I might look up or be able to diagnose, but it doesn't require that. It requires compliance. It requires the desire to engage in works that helps you, you know, come into your best self. Mm-hmm. What it highlights is the difference between having a conversation with your boys or your homegirls and what it means to go to therapy. I'm not here to to necessarily coach you or give you advice. I'm here to, one, help you explore the issue. So look at it from all angles, all sides, And you can do that when you're able to take a kind of a a, a bird's eye view from it, um, because it's not my life. It's not something I'm able to pull back from it and maybe see some things that you're missing because you're so close to the situation. Mm -hmm. And so I think, um, you know, oftentimes when we go to our family members or we go to our friends, what we're really looking for is either someone to placate us, pat us on the head or give us some advice. And while there is some advice, quote unquote, giving in therapy, it is in the pursuit of you first figuring out what it is that's going on and then thinking of ways with someone not for someone. I don't do therapy for you. I do it with you because um, it's all about you. I'm just the person behind the screen, as I like to tell people. I'm the person who is there to help guide you, but I'm not doing it for you.
0: And now that's very, very helpful. So now that we know what psychology is and we know what therapy is, I, I, I can only assume that these past few months have been unfortunately good for business.
1: Like there's um, I would a lot going In many ways. I would say in many ways, quote unquote, they have. And again, I like your reframe. It's like unfortunately, yeah. Um there has been an increase in a desire and or a need um, for mental health services from a trained professional. Um and it also has exacerbated issues that my current caseload already had. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so take somebody who's already struggling and you put them in a, uh, a whole world full of struggle and then you get some exacerbation of symptoms. Yeah.
0: What kind of effects have you seen uh, on people during the pandemic and the racial reckoning for that matter? Because that's equally traumatic for African-Americans. What Have you seen an uptick in any particular kinds of, of stresses or effects on
1: people? Um, I th- I think the biggest thing, um, I think I began, began to see it probably maybe about four months or so into the pandemic is this this destabilization of any sense of control and this um kind of because we were kind of stuck at home because we weren't going anywhere there was this kind of destabilization of structure like people had no structure anymore and what people don't always recognize is that human beings actually thrive off of structure. Like we need something to shape and mold our day. And when it's, when it's thrown into upheaval and now all the lines are blurred, then you start to have this sense of dissonance, this sense of discomfort um, and you can't seem to get it together. So whether that be your sleep schedule is off, which is another Area where we intervene. We call that sleep hygiene when you're not sleeping the right way anymore because you know you don't have to get up and commute an hour to work anymore, or you're staying up all night, or you're engaging in habits simply because you're at home and you have access to them that you wouldn't have done so if you were in the office. And so that creates a lot of anxiety for people. So you see a lot of uptick in anxiety. Um, sometimes, um, there has been some uptick in depression because of isolation, um, Mm -hmm. by force, um, -hmm. not by choice, you know, some depressives choose to isolate, but when they're ready to be with people, they're ready to be with people. And when you don't have that option, it's kind of like, uh, and so you see this kind of uptick in those kind of. Uh, those type of mental health symptoms.
0: Yeah. What are some basic, basic coping mechanisms, man, that the average person could em- employ to make it through these times? Cause I think even though it looks like with the vaccines, we're going to start to open up a little bit, I think we might be opening a little prematurely. So there's also a significant chance we'll end up back in some weird space. So this mm-hmm. might go on for a little while longer. What are some coping mechanisms that, you know, the average person can employ to kind of make it through these times?
1: Yeah. And, The way I frame this for particularly my patients is what was working before? Um, You know, no, we weren't in a global pandemic in 2019. Um, But what were you doing to cope with your life stressors before the pandemic? Um, And trying to remember those and go back to them. If you were a journaler, can you go back to doing that? If you were someone who was an advocate um, athlete or someone who did exercise, while it may not look the same because for a while their gyms weren't open and maybe they weren't able to do that. But is there some way I could shift and pivot to reincorporate the things that I had once did before? And so... One thing that I often recommend is what I was just talking about before, reestablishing a sense of structure. And so giving yourself a structure. So if there's nothing in your life imposing structure on you anymore, you have to impose structure on yourself. And that is I go to sleep at a certain time. I wake up at a certain time. I try to eat three balanced meals per day. I try to insert something to do um, in between things. And the biggest thing is give yourself some sense of joy each day. Find something that you know will make. It can be something as small as, you know, my morning cup of coffee makes me smile. It's not just the caffeine. It makes me smile. It it harkens me back to growing up um, with my parents and grandparents and that safety that I felt when I smelled the smell of coffee in the morning, knowing that Everything is okay because everyone's alive because the coffee pot is on. Mm. So if it, it could be something that small um, to taking your daily walk if you're a nature person. So finding those things that work for you, mm-hmm. not for everybody else, because exercise and yoga don't work for everybody. Right.
0: And engaging, I would assume, in your faith practice, whatever that is, praying, meditating, and those kinds of things.
1: And that can, and that can be, again, if you are a spiritual or religious person and you have faith, re-engaging in that, you know, sometimes, you know, we couldn't go to, like, we still haven't gone necessarily back to our houses of worship. And so how can I re-engage with that? How can I, you know, have these practices engage in a different way? And that feels so uncomfortable at first because you, humans are creatures of habit. We like mm-hmm. to do things a certain way at a certain time. And now we have to like pivot and shift and say like, okay, I can't do it this way, but is there any way I can do it? And mm-hmm. trying to find, you know, new and innovative ways to do things. Okay.
0: Now, this is a personal question that's going to be helpful to the audience, I believe. And one of them is I've, you know, I've gone back and forth about maybe considering therapy a couple of times over the years and considering it again, I feel fine. I don't feel like anything in quote unquote wrong, but I feel like there's some things I might benefit from unpacking with somebody walk me, walk us through a typical session from the patient's point of view. What should somebody who's never been to therapy expect when they walk into your office for the first time?
1: So let's think about it like this. So think about it like any relationship. Think about it like a first date. The first couple of times you go out, you're getting to know each other. And so we call that an intake or an evaluation. Mm -hmm. That means I'm like I'm setting the stage, and I'm asking you a lot of questions. The most important of which I think is why now that's the question I start off with: Why now? Because oftentimes we go through things in our lives, and there's usually sometimes there's a tipping point, a tipping moment, an event that says now i want to go to therapy and that's what i really want to know about of course i ask people like you know what types of things that you want to work on and you know what brings you in but i really want to know what brought you in today what hit the fan what what straw broke the camel's back that said i need to go to therapy so it starts off with that and it starts off with me You know, diving into different parts of your life just in a questioning way. We're not even into therapy yet. Because in order for me to help you, it helps me to understand what's been going on, a little bit of your history that might also be related to what's going on right now. So it's a lot of questions to start off with. So it's going to feel like a question and answer session. And then once we've completed what we call the intake or the initial evaluation, then we sit down together and we decide, okay, based on everything here, you know, sometimes there's a diagnosis, sometimes there's a not, not but what there is, is this is what I'd like to work on based on what I've told you. And we can, we do that together. Mm-hmm. Like I can think you really need to work on the fact that you drink alcohol, well, you drink three drinks a day four times a week. And what you're there for is I really want to work on my relationship with my dad. So we're not going to get anywhere if I'm driving the boat. You have to say, this is what I want to work on. Now I can suggest some things and hopefully we can interweave and come to an agreement on those, but it's really about what you came to work on. And we want to focus on that because people are more likely to do the work if they've had some say so in what we're working on. And so then it begins the process of therapy. That could be, you know, traditionally it's weekly, once a week. If there's significant concerns going on, sometimes it's twice a week. If it's not as much going on, maybe it's twice a month. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we begin this process of exploring and conversing and you bringing in what's been happening within these areas on a weekly basis. So what's been going on in your life on a weekly basis? What has your conversations with your dad look like this week as compared to last week? Or what has your drinking looked like this week as compared to last week? And that gives us, you know, grist for the mill. You need something to come in and talk about. Let's give me what's happening in your daily life. How is this impacting you? And how would you like it to impact you? So it kind of proceeds from there and. Therapists have different frameworks and they conceptualize behavior in different ways. And so often how we conceptualize behavior um, dictates how we help to guide the therapy because we have a conceptual understanding of, I think this is what's going on. So I'm going to test my hypothesis as we continue going through these sessions.
0: Now, this is going to sound ridiculous and silly, but I think it's real. How does Mm -hmm. one shop for
1: a therapist? (laughs) Yeah, man, it's um, it can be difficult. Um, I get so many of just friends or family members asking me like, where can I find a therapist now? You know, in the advent of social media and you know, the internet, there are so many more sites where you can go and shop around for a therapist, things like psychology today, or there are, there's a website called therapy for black men and, There's even ZocDoc. ZocDoc has therapists on it. Mm. And so it begins this process of, one, trying to find out, okay, how how do I want to do therapy? Do I want to do it weekly? Do I want to do it in person? Do I want to do it virtually? Because that's what the pandemic has brought into the world, this idea that I can sit on my couch and I can do therapy with my therapist over camera. Um, which has been around for a while, but I think we accept it a little bit more now. Mm -hmm. Um, Or do I want to really sit in front of somebody and talk to them? And so a lot of people, you know, and you can shop for a therapist. Just because you go to the initial intake um, doesn't mean that you're committing yourself to that being your therapist, because nothing's going to work if we can't form a relationship. Um, now, it's a therapeutic relationship. It is a you know, client-patient relationship, uh, client-therapist relationship in a way. But there still needs to be some degree of you know, mutual trust that can be built upon. Because you don't know me from a whole wall from the first session. Right. But what you can do is you know, think like, okay, I'm going to try to get to know this person as well, because more comes up when you trust me more you're more open to talk about the things that are inside of your head because I can't open your head up. Right. Um, so those are, those are ways you can go. So using the internet, using word of mouth, um, talking to people that you know that might be either therapists or tangentially relate, like in the allied health fields that they might be able to recommend some people or some clinics. Um, and just start from there and then see how you gel with the person on the first meeting. But people
0: should know that the relationships and the conversations are incredibly confidential and protected. Yes. And it's probably not a good idea to take therapy from a good friend.
1: That is, you know. So, yeah, it's not a good idea and if your friend is a good therapist, they wouldn't do it anyway. Um it is r- literally against our code of ethics to have this kind of dual relationship with people and that you know, I already know too much about you. I can't give you therapy. Now I can give you good advice as a friend who is a therapist, but I'm not gonna be a therapist. Um and so we that try line? to we those walls up. Yeah. Have
0: you huh? crossed that line? You can't be my therapist now?
1: Nope. Can't do it. Oh well. All right. Well, I have to can't move do on. It. <laughs> That's probably
0: not a good idea for a couple of reasons. Um <laughs> so, you know, we probably sorted of answered this a little bit in our initial uh talk about what therapy is, but you know, the African-American community is typically stigmatized mental health issues. And, and we're not generally that trustful to the medical system for a lot of good reasons or therapy. Uh, but you know, my question is, when does one know that they may need therapy or more generally, who can benefit from therapy? And what do you say to listeners, particularly African-Americans, who may be feeling some kind of way about the benefits of therapy and their concerns and, and fears? Yeah.
1: Well, first, I feel like everybody can benefit from therapy. Everybody can benefit from having a space that is theirs for 45 minutes to an hour a week where they get to talk about what they want to talk about. I think everybody benefits from that because we're so, we're always in such a hustle or a bustle to do this, that, or the other, or we're catering to other people that sometimes that's that one hour a week where it's your time. You are the star of the show, and the person across from you is there to let you be the star of the show and run that program. Um, and so uh, everybody could benefit from therapy. Um, I'm forgetting the other part of your question. It was just on the tip of my and tongue. It was about
0: benefiting. And then it was about the stigma and the stigmatization of mental health issues and and general distrust of the system, you know?
1: Yeah. And there was also this idea of like, when do you know you need therapy? Mm-hmm. Um I always tell people it's kind of the same way that I think about when I discharge people from therapy Um, is that if you, if you are engaging in some type of behavior and keep in mind that your thinking is also in many ways a behavior um, because it influences your behavior. So if you have patterns of thought or behavior that are getting in the way of you doing something in your life, achieving some goal, living your best life, as I like to say, or living, having your life worth living, which is a, you know, a term that's used in one of the therapeutic modalities, that's a good time to think about therapy because now something that's going on inside of my head that's creating these behaviors is getting in the way of me having my best life. um, And I need some help around that. Um, So that's one trigger to say like, maybe therapy could be helpful.
0: I'm going to, um, I'm going to
1: need a referral. <laughs> to
0: <this
1: conversation>. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? You know, And again, people think that like, I got to be falling apart. I got to be drunk every day or, you know, I have to have everybody in my life telling me that I need to go to therapy in order to go to therapy. And while sometimes that is the case, oftentimes it's you making a decision that I want to go to the next level and something, you know, in my behavior, in my thinking pattern is getting in the way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I need some help with that. And I would like professional help versus going to my mama or my friends or my boyfriend or my girlfriend, whatever. Yeah. Um, and you're right. There is so much stigma um, in the African-American community, particularly around mental health services, um, while it gets looped into a lot of just... in general medical mistrust there is just this idea that among many african americans and african american communities is that to go to therapy means that i'm crazy or that if i have a problem that i can't handle on my own that says something about me that i'm less than that i am broken um, and i think You know, that gets in the way of us seeking the help we need when we need it. Um, so that stigma is real. Um, and while I think there has been a reckoning of sorts in which African Americans have become more willing to engage in therapy, we're still not where we need to be, um, in general. And so there's a lot of things that, that play into that stigma. And then a big one is like the, kind of lack of people of color who are in the mental health profession. And so people thinking about, like, am I going to be able to sit across some from someone who looks like me and be able to have them understand me in a way so that we can actually do the work together. And so, you know, you know, if I think the last statistics was only about two or 3% of the, membership in the American Psychological Association, which is what many psychologists, psychologists are a member of, is African-American.
0: You're not making uh, me or anybody else more excited yeah. about going to therapy now with that statement. Because <laughs> I got to tell you, I, as much as I'm an artist and I'm a creative person, I'm a scientist at my core. That's what I started out doing. I was a pre-med major. I wanted to be a doctor. Uh, so I get science. I get the concept of it. I get how anybody who understands and has been trained properly can do this job. But I got to tell you, I'm not so sure if I'm comfortable talking to somebody who I don't think understands my plight or what I've gone through. uh, Talking to me about my issues or concern, particularly if they're on white supremacy or racism or some societal issues that I, I don't think they can connect with in the way that I do. I understand why that shouldn't be an issue, but Yeah.
1: It's less about the should, shouldn't be. And it's more about this is my lived experience and this is what it is. Mm -hmm. And so in order for me to be comfortable, I need to have someone who is in alignment with at least certain parts of my lived experience. I may not be able to find a clone of myself, which is probably good because you also need somebody who can be separate from you and understand that. Um, And so it really depends on the person. Some women are perfectly fine with a male therapist some males are perfectly fine with a female therapist some african-americans are uh, are are perfectly okay with a majority therapist um and and, you know you can do any all the combinations and permutations of therapist and client Mm -hmm. and some people are really looking for at least to be able to look across the table and see someone who looks like them
0: Yeah, I just think (laughs) it just seems like it would go a long way towards you doing what's important, which is opening up and and sharing as much as possible so we can make you guys and your job easier. Uh, You know, so much of this podcast, man, is, is focused on discovering embracing and loving your authentic self and 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 identity itself and i want to hear a little bit more just a little context for people about who you are as a person and and how you came to be a psychologist so you know you're from memphis right and and you went to morehouse and we know a little bit about who you were raised by uh just you know real light touch on it what was childhood like for you and and growing up in memphis
1: you know what? Childhood was pretty good. I came from a two parent household, which again is not always necessarily a great thing. Um, but, you know, it was good having m- both of my parents in the household and, you know, shaping and molding me. But, you know, I don't think I really, you know, when you're a teenager living in the house with your parents, I don't think you realize how much who they are impacts you later on in life until you're later on in life looking back like, Ooh, that's maybe why I think the way I think, or good, bad, or indifferent. Um, or this is maybe why I like the things that I like, or maybe why I got into the profession it is that I that I'm in now. Um and I had that realization probably like during one of my internship interviews. And one of the, the you know, the interviewers asked me that question and it made me stop and ponder and like and begin to look back over my life at particularly my parents my grandmother and my great-grandmother and kind of the roles they took in people's lives, they were helping professionals in and of themselves. They may not have had a degree in psychology or social work or anything of that nature, but they were always out helping the community in some way, shape or form, whether that have been teaching Sunday school, being the president of the mission at church. So, you know, food drives or, you know, taking care of the church or fixing things for everybody in the church or doing taxes for people in the community. Um, yeah. It was, you know, I didn't realize that impact until I was probably in my thirties.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's, it's it's amazing. And the older you get, the more it kind of surfaces because I realize now as I look back and I'm looking at my life, my career, my father shows up most in how I move in terms of work. He's like a hardworking person, always doing everything himself, knows everything, whatever. So I'm very that when it comes to my career. Um, I'm both my parents when it comes to they're always helped people, always open and supportive of other people. I'm very much them when it comes to that. And then my mother shows up in my relationships. And I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing, but she shows up. Like the emotions are... Right here on the sleeve, uh, which you know can serve you well sometimes, and other times it can't. But yeah, you. But I'm very grateful that they're my parents, and they definitely put a stamp on and who I am. Although I'm very much my own person as well. Um, how do you self-identify pronouns and, and all that stuff?
1: I I use um, cisgender male he. Okay. I always strip up he him his are my <laughs> pronouns. <laughs>
0: Yeah, it's it's an important discussion because i think you know it's it's kind to do it because you just don't we shouldn't we live in a space now where we shouldn't make these assumptions about who people are and how they want to identify and so it's it's kind to ask as an older person i'm not gonna lie it's still a journey for me because i'm just like wait what oh mm-hmm. yeah i'm a man Like what the, why are you at like are you serious and then it hits me like no There's a reason why people are asking and there's a very wonderful reason why people are asking and just grow, evolve, get with the program and you're going to be all right because I do care about other people. so
1: Yeah, I preface that in my, when I do my evaluations with people, I start off and I I think I picked up this line a while ago when I was doing evaluations just more often. And I tell people that when I do your evaluations, I'm doing a no assumptions evaluations. So even if something seems apparent to me, I'm still going to ask you about it because you might give me an answer that I wasn't expecting. And I don't want to go through this evaluation making assumptions because assumptions lead to an inaccurate conceptualization of what's going on. And so if you really want me to help you, just let me ask you these odd questions. Some of them are going to feel odd. I'm going to ask you questions about gender and all these types of things, but I just don't want to make the assumption. Yeah.
0: Um, so let's talk about identity a little bit. I'm really curious about, well, first of all, let's go back one step. Um, your decision to become a therapist, when did that happen? <laughs> and what affected that? What drove that? Cause that's an interesting decision for a little black boy from Memphis, Tennessee to make.
1: Right. Cause I didn't know anything about psychology or therapy, um, really until college. Um, and again, From my bio, you read, I was a business major. Um, I had all these ideas that I wanted to be like a retail buyer for Macy's or things like this. I was a marketing major, um, and I navigated my early life in that manner in college, and I took internships, and I was an intern at like Macy's um, for two summers. Um, And what really happened that shaped this, that kind of changed the trajectory, I think I don't know, you call it divine providence, call it whatever you want. Um, After I finished my second year of my internship, um, leaving um, undergraduate, I wasn't offered a job. Um, For, you know, they said I didn't talk enough or whatever. I was a hard worker, but they would have liked to hear my voice a lot. So at that point, I decided whatever job I get, you're going to hear from me all the time. Um, so I ended up, the job that I ended up getting was for a for-profit university um, doing, you know, admissions, which I didn't know at the time was really sales, which I found very quickly, like, I don't really like sales. Um, and so the, the first opportunity I get, I transitioned to a a, um, a role in that organization where I was in student management. Meaning I was working with students trying to help them solve problems around staying in school, getting in school, and navigating the college environment. Um, and so something someone told me many years ago was whether you like a job or hate whether you like a job or hate a job. Look for the pieces or the job that you actually do enjoy and see if you can find a profession or a role in which you can magnify the things that you'd like and get rid of or significantly diminish the things that you don't. Um, And what I knew is that I had given myself a timeline of you're going to grad school within three years of undergrad. You don't know what you're going for yet. And when I started to think about it, I thought initially I was going to be a teacher, um, but then when I started doing teaching, I stumbled across guidance counseling, and then I stumbled across guidance counseling programs, and then I saw this mental health counseling. I was like, what is this? And I started to do my research, um, and it spoke to me in a powerful way. And so I decided to apply for mental health counseling programs. Um, to get my master's. I thought I was gonna stop there and then I got my PhD. But what it was is what I realized looking back is that mental health counseling in many ways show shone light on an aspect of myself that has always been there because I'm very observant. I'm always paying attention to and analyzing people's behavior. I don't necessarily say it out loud, but I like to pay attention to people. Um and that has served me well my entire life. And of course, as a psychologist, it has served me very well. So I actually came stumbled across it, honestly. But I think in some ways there was some kind of divine intervention or providence that kind of you know, shifted me in that direction. Because I could be a head retail buyer at Macy's right now had they hired me. Um, but I think at some point in time, I would have gotten sick of that and it wouldn't have felt right. And I still would have ended up here.
0: Yeah, no that that all makes sense, and I, I'm you know I'm a person of faith as you know, and I in my heart of hearts believe that God's a black woman, and uh, you know. She, God's gonna get you together when you need to be God together, but other times when God wants and needs you to do something, God can be looking down this aisle looking for eggs and grab you by your collar without looking at you and direct you where they need you where God needs you to go and that's kind of what those divine providence moments feel like for me um now let's talk about identity a little bit though um you know what is identity and and how is it conceived? because I would imagine that that you know it's a pretty important piece of, you know, you guys work understanding who people are at their core and and the behavior and how the behaviors relate to how they perceive themselves to be. So mm-hmm. let's unpack this identity thing a little bit. Um, I'm very curious about that.
1: Yeah. The, I did the idea of identity. It doesn't have to be something super complex, but it is who you are in every facet. Um, and you can go, you can run down the gamut of things that play into your identity, but it's, it really just boils down to who you are. That can be race, ethnicities, um, gender, um, sexual orientation, ability level, um, am I able or, you know, differently abled? Um, uh, And then it gets into the realm of also what's my personality? Um, What things do I like? What things do I dislike? Um, What type of people do I like? Who do I choose to love? All these things are all just facets if you, just, if you think of it just like a, any type of form or figure that has all these multiple facets around it, um, all these different faces, that's what our identity is. And then it comes together and it creates this synergy all coming together and it gets real, and then it gets real nebulous at that point as well.
0: Gotcha. Is it, now, is it fair to say that identity on some level is kind of like who you are and personality is how that's expressed?
1: Identity as who you are in person. Yeah, I I think it's fair in you know many ways. you know that's a fair and you know that's boiling it down. But it really is the personality is what comes from you know who you are, your experiences, and then it gets projected into the world.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just I'd like to try to break things down as, as in the most mm-hmm. basic pieces as possible because I think so many times you know I'm an artist as you know and. In the art world or in in the faith world, being a theologian or whatever, you know, we think about and write about and and experience things as these lofty ideas and concepts, and that's great, but it doesn't help the average person if you can't break it down in these bite-sized chunks that everybody gets. So, yeah, I just wanted to understand kind of the difference between identity and and, and personality in in a way that can be helpful for other people. Um, Now... Your doctoral research was really interesting. You did it on this potential moderators of masculinity, masculinity, ideology, and health risk in college Black men. Tell me a little bit about how you got into that. Well, I'm not so much how, I got a sense of how, but I am curious about how a little bit. And then also more about the research itself and its findings. Because uh, this last piece of this conversation, man, I really want to focus on us as Black men and, and how to help us heal and get comfortable with the idea of working with other people to heal and to grow and to be our best selves. So tell me a little bit about that research and, and your findings.
1: Yeah, uh, you know, I can't, again, once again, I came about it honestly. Um, when I went to grad school initially um, and was majoring in mental health counseling or counseling for mental health and wellness, whatever you want to call it. Um, At a certain point, you kind of want to decide, you know, who are you passionate about working with? And I was passionate about working with um, people that looked like me. Um, I was looking at, and I was, interested in so I was interested in working with the people that looked like me or loved like me so ch- sexual minorities or minorities in general and I came across a couple of things my first internship site in my master's program was at this um, institution in New York that caters to LGBTQ LGBTQ youth. And then I also found a research institution because at that time I had decided that I wanted to pursue my PhD. So I wanted to get some research experience. So I ended up being a research intern for this organization that did all this research on gender, uh, mostly sexuality as it relates to like behavior and HIV.
0: So let me hold you there. Let's roll that back. I don't want to make assumptions that other people know what I happen to know already, which is Love like you, look yep. like you. What's love like you mean?
1: Love like you is meaning as I, as my, I, I identify as a gay male. Right. And so that's, that's, yeah. So I think many therapists are drawn to topics and subjects that are sometimes, particularly therapists of color, and if any psychology major who's doctoral level, I always feel like they pick a dissertation that they are passionate about, and it's usually for reasons that are either central to or tangential to their identity. Because keep in mind, to do a dissertation, I got to stay interested in this for about about three years, and then I got to do a lot of writing and research on it. So you better be interested in it, otherwise you're going to be very bored, and you're and never <laughs> going to finish your dissertation.
0: And miserable. Ever. And probably not be able to defend it.
1: will uh, be ABD- for eternity because you're so bored. you rather clean the tile than do the research. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you got to pick something that, you, that you're passionate about. And so I found that. And, and that made me stumble onto this idea of masculinity and gender and gendered socialization, if you want to just, you know, give it a name, but gendered socialization and gender roles and how we navigate the world as men and women, mm-hmm. how are we, how does that come about, which is very much related to identity development and socialization in our society. Um, and then how does that play out across our lifespan? And, and then you add the inter- intersecting variables of race, ethnicity to that. And that even further blurs the picture. And so I was fascinated by this, Particularly, you know, growing up in the South and knowing men who had to or be a certain way um, or they or so they thought mm-hmm. because society had told them that's what it was. That's what gendered socialization means. We socialize men and women differently. Yeah. And I think for a long time we felt like that's, that's how it had to be you know, men have to do it this way and women have to do it this way and nor never the to meet in the middle. And that has led to particularly for, you know, yes, that has led to a lot of issues for women. Um, and that's when the feminism movement came um, into being and helped women to break free of that traditional gender role. There was not necessarily a counter movement on the part of men at that time, but, you know, the work around men and masculinity actually came out of the work on feminism so when women start to understand themselves better and their roles in society then men um, for about the last 30 maybe 40 years at this point started looking like so why do men have to be this way mm-hmm. and how does this affect us Because what the research shows very, very clearly at this point is that the traditional ways that many men have been raised and taught to be men leads to significant issues um, in their health and well-being over time, whether that be physical health or mental health socialization as well it leads to issues in our relationships with our family and our friends and our partners um it leads to poor outcomes as far as going to the doctor because we feel pain because we've been taught as young boys that boys don't cry if you feel pain tough it out Mm -hmm. um when that pain could really be a signal that you really should go to the doctor Mm -hmm. (laughs) um And so there's all these things around restrictive emotionality. We can't express emotions. All these things have been tied to poor health and mental health in men. And then you add Black men and you add kind of the context, the African-American and Black community. And it gets even worse. And, of course, being a Black man, (laughs) I was like, oh, I can't let let my people go out like this. Um, because that's that was my passion like if this is what's happening and nobody's paying attention to it like this ain't good
0: yeah no that's very very fascinating and i'm glad that you know this is why this conversation is so important to me because i think there's so much to unpack and i'm glad you tied it to the negative outcomes physically and mentally in terms of health as you as you continue to grow because it does affect people in so many ways um and it's interesting because people hold on, even things that don't serve us well. We tend to try to hold on to because that's just the way it's always been done or that's how it's supposed to be or I don't want to be ostracized for my community, my family, my whatever. Uh, and I'm not even just talking about sexuality. It's just, you know, being a man's man and all this emotionally unavailable crap, which is not realistic because as human beings, we're emotional creatures. And if, you, if you're if only taught you can express one emotion, aggression or anger, then obviously uh, that's not going to end well for a lot of people, including the people you love. Um, We're in an interesting moment, though, with, you know, this 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 gender kind of liberation moment, I call it, where people are pushing back against all these, you know, these norms, quote unquote, that we've uh, placed on people. Uh, And you've got people like Lil Nas X making these really bold statements. I'm just curious from a psychologist, from a therapeutic point of view. What do you see as the impact of this this moment that we're in? And specifically, can you use Little Nas X and, and the controversy around him living his truth and and speaking to it as where we are? And, and what do you see the positive and negative uh, effects of how this is playing out publicly?
1: Yeah. So the positives are, is that it is giving, it is giving light and is giving voice to alternative ways of being in this world. I mean, we've known about alternative ways of being in this world for a time, but to put it on front street, to really put it out there and for it to be a representation of who I can be and that I don't have to be in this box. Because I always think of the man box when I think about masculinity. I think about all those norms that I talked about, about having to be tough and dominant and aggressive and never show emotions. Keeps us in a box. And what society does is anytime a man tries to creep out of that box, we enact all these forces to push him right back in. Mm-hmm. So if a if a little boy cries, what does their mom or their dad do? Because keep in mind, men are not the only ones who, who create and maintain the man box. Women do it too. And so if a little boy cries, his mom might shake him and be like, boys don't cry. Get it together. Like, like. Man up, and which is a word that people have used over time, and so we force them back into the box. What is happening now, um, you know, with people like Little Nas X, which I think is great, is that you know they're they're literally not only stepping outside the box, they're trying to dismantle the box and allow for this this spectrum of what it means to be a man and that it's not this one narrow definition and you're giving, you're showing representations of I can still be, I can still identify as male. I can still, you know, go by he, him, his pronouns and I can wear high heel shoes or long braids and that's okay. Um, And it's giving liberation to a, a whole generation of people to say like, I don't have to be what you told me I had to be. Yeah. You know, um, I think, yeah, I'm sorry, man. Go ahead. No, no. It's because the negatives are is what I think what happens with the negatives there is that, you know, you also get to see on front street those mechanisms, you know, as they do trying to push people back into the box. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like you see the critics coming out saying this, that or the other about Multiple aspects of, you know, if you want to use little Nas X, you want like, you you know, some people have come out about, you know, the sexual, um, the the kind of the gender presentation. Some are coming about the religious representation. All of it is still to say, like, you need to stay in this box because this is how we feel comfortable interacting with you. And in order for this world to work, I need to be comfortable with who you are, not you be comfortable with yourself. And that's problematic. <laughs> Yeah, that's completely problematic.
0: I think that's what's also interesting, though, and ultimately, ultimately dangerous, but not a huge concern in the moment because you got to get people free first. Uh, But I do think that people who have dealt with so much trauma and so much pain, uh, so much victimization, it's very easy sometimes for people without thinking about it to, you know, do you want freedom or do you want to not? Or, and to you know, stop being bullied, stop being whatever, or do you want to just switch roles where you get to be in power and be the bully and mm. other people? Be- because you know, I've noticed what feels like some of that happening too. I'm like, righteous indignation is an interesting emotion because it can make people be the very thing that they say they're rebelling against when they're not careful. Have you seen that? And what's your thought about that? I'm just curious what your thoughts are about that.
1: Oh, absolutely. People have. I feel like people have been doing that for centuries. Somebody has to be on the bottom of the hierarchy and it's not going to be me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I believe that there is, you know, any type of divisive language breeds more division. And so it's, it really speaks to like these ideas of power and privilege and understanding even if you are the most marginalized individual on the planet, you still may hold privileges in areas that you don't even think about as a black gay man. Maybe I don't have privilege in terms of my race, but I'm a male. Mm -hmm. Um, so I hold privilege in that area. Um, and so I have to recognize that in order to ensure that I'm using my privilege appropriately or I'm giving it away. Um, I started a meeting and I, I couldn't, I can't remember the entirety of that quote that I use from this um, young black um, female activist. But what do you do with something that you didn't earn? You give it away. And that's what privilege is. I didn't earn anything about being male. I was just born as a male. And so how do I recognize that? And I ensure that I can give that away appropriately and not utilize that to You know, disenfranchise or belittle someone else because nobody wants to be at the bottom of the totem pole. But why does there like, you know, why does why is there this this rigid hierarchy um, that we can't all win?
0: Yeah. I mean, no one wants to be at the bottom of the totem pole, but why does there have to be a totem pole in the first freaking place? Right. Um, Right. You know, yeah, and you, you don't want to be that masculine black gay man that then all of a sudden has a problem with a feminine black gay man or a transgender person. I mean, at the end of the day, I think if you love yourself fully and truly as who you were created to be and who you are, then it kind of eliminates a lot of that need, that desire to diminish other people. Um, so, you know, that power of self-love and, and telling the truth um, really can make a difference in the world and in each individual's life. And to that end, I'm just curious, you know, what have you witnessed as the power of people who actually love themselves and are comfortable telling the truth about who they are? What have you seen as uh the power of that in developing and in maintaining a healthy sense of self and, and healing not only themselves, but the people around them and the communities that they that they live in? Have you seen that evidenced in your work?
1: Oh, absolutely. You need so, you know, a prerequisite for being any good to anybody else is being good to yourself first. So It starts with kind of the self-love, which can be very difficult when we live in a society that often tells us that I shouldn't love this aspect of myself or I should be more like this or more like that. And it becomes very difficult. So we spend a good portion of our lives trying to dismantle or try to reconceptualize what it means to be me and to love me. Um, And once I know how to love me, then I can teach people how to treat me. I can create boundaries around you know, this person that I love being, because when we don't love ourselves, we have these very permeable boundaries where we allow the wind to blow and we shift this way and we allow the wind to blow and we shift that way um, instead of creating boundaries around the aspects of ourselves that we value. Um and so when people start to value aspects of themselves, I do a lot of work with, you know, I tend to work with younger people. So I work with young adults and that's in that, that's in the, you know, that's the first time they they're either leaving home or they're coming into their own, trying to understand who they are separate from their families of origin. And that leads to a lot of turmoil in your early young adult years because you're trying to establish who you are as a person, and also at the same time realizing that everybody doesn't look like you, it was not raised like you. And so then you get all these new notions and ideas about what it means to be a human from all these different interactions you're having outside of your home and your community, and you get thrown into a tailspin. And then you get to decide at that moment, like, huh, who do I want to be? Oh, I don't have to hate this person even though my mama said that I do. Um, I don't have to act this way, even though that my dad said I had to. So it leads to this freedom and this liberation of you know, loving yourself and then creating a space where you know how you want to be treated by other people. That's profound.
0: And to that end, brother, what do you say? This is an opportunity to not just speak to one patient at a time, to just speak to Black men. What would you tell Black men? What do you want Black men to know about identity, about self, about their mental health, about their well-being? Just whatever is on your heart, whatever is on your mind, just share that. Speak directly to the camera, directly to Black men and tell them, tell us what you want us to
1: know. I want Black men to know that you are human and you are entitled to the full spectrum of being human that means that you're entitled to every emotion that you can physically muster because your brain is able to do it. And if you start with that, if you start with this idea that I'm human, it dismantles a lot of, it dismantles centuries of people telling you that you're not. And if we start there, if we start there as black men, then we can begin to reconstruct what it means to be black men in our families, in our communities, and to ourselves and each other. And so if we could just do that, just start off with just believing that you are human and you are entitled to everything that every other human being is entitled to.
0: Now that's beautiful. And, you know, there's this divide that has also often existed in the country, in the world, in the Black community, in a number of places. This thing about science or faith like there's this false choice between science and faith i know that you're a man of faith i know that we worship in the same church i know that you're raised by a minister Uh, but i also know that you're clearly a science and an accomplished a scientist and an accomplished one can they coexist of course i know the answer already but can they coexist and And help people work their way through that, because I think, as a country and as a planet, we're really dealing with the answer to that questioning being the one that's going to determine whether we survive or not. How do science and faith exist in the same space?
1: I think they can, and they they have for centuries. So the answer the short answer is yes, they can exist in the same space. So what is science? science is simply taking information or data that we already know to be true and utilizing that to make decisions and things about the world and ourselves faith again if you you go back to the 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 the, the substance of things hope for the evidence of things not seen um you know science often can't explain everything cuz we as human beings are consistently getting to know more and more about the world that we live in and we don't have we don't have perfect knowledge about our world and so sometimes how faith interacts with that is that it gives you that extra oomph when you know science comes to its end because it hasn't advanced to that point yet so and they I feel like they they exist together on the same earth and they can live in the same body I can be a scientist who values the concrete um, but also leaves space for the unknown. It's a little bit easier as a social scientist because that's the that's the realm that I deal in is because human beings are super unpredictable. We can we act against our own best interests often like because of the way our brains are structured, we often act it. We don't act always in our own best interest. Mm -hmm. Most animals who are just instinctual always act in their own best interest. If you scare me and you try to hurt me, I'm going to fight you or kill you. Mm -hmm. I'm hungry. I need to find food. You add humanity to the picture and then we got all sorts of, you know, things going on inside our heads because we got this big piece of brain right here that helps us to think, reason, and plan that other animals don't have. And so we have to allow, you know, that space in that room to know that we don't know it all and then allow, you know, sometimes faith to take the extra step. Um,
0: Would you would you agree with this statement that at some point it's probably in our best interest to be uncomfortable with the reality that we cannot and will not and do not need to understand everything
1: Oh yeah. I mean, that's a, you know, that any anxious person is some, that's something that I try to teach them from day one yeah. is that you have to learn how to be uncomfortable with uncertainty yeah. because you often don't recognize how comfortable you are with uncertainty until you realize that 98% of your day, you're uncertain about things. You can never be a hundred percent sure what what's going to happen every time you walk out the house, but you do it every day. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I kind of hook on to those things that there is a certain degree of having to be uncomfortable with uncertainty until somebody develops a crystal ball where you can see the future, which you may not want to see because, you know, you never know what's coming through that crystal ball. You have to have some degree of acceptance, um, radical acceptance, as some people call it, of there's just some things that I'm just not going to know.
0: Exactly. I mean, we look out into the world and as scientists or as people of faith. We look at the diversity of life that exists on the earth, and we celebrate it. Look at all the plants and the trees and the flowers and the insects and all the other animals. And we celebrate that diversity. But somehow with human beings, we freak out when somebody or something's different. And this makes no sense to me. Uh, And I think I just asked that question because I think so much of what we do in terms of how we harm each other is based on... What do you mean your pronoun is they? What is trans? I don't get, I don't understand like, and because you don't understand, you want to lash out, but I don't need to understand how the flower was created in order to appreciate and love the flower. I don't have to understand where water comes from to know and appreciate that it nourishes me. I don't have to understand why you think or why you express yourself the way you do to love you as a human being. I think if we can get there, we will be all right. And it's a lot easier to get there if you just love yourself Embrace yourself first, Hugh. This has been a great conversation. I'm sorry, Doctor Love. This has been a great conversation. Uh, what do you need people to know? I want people to know where can they find you on social media, and what are some uh, psych- psychology uh, resources that people uh, can look to in order? You know, you mentioned something about black men. And-
1: um, there is therapy for black men. There is Psychology Today that is a repository for um, mental health professionals that has been in, in use for quite some times. You can go on ZocDoc. You can just go again. This is the Google age. You can go on Google and say, I need a mental health professional in my area. This is my zip code. And it'll be, it will be, it will search for you and it will, it will begin, begin the process.
0: Or we can have uh, Dr. Love send me an email with a couple of these links and I'll put them in the show notes for this. As I post the episode, we can do that. Too. Okay.
1: I can definitely do that. So yeah, there's just so many resources out there. Um, you just have to, you know, some have someone to point you in the right direction and, you know, take it from there.
0: Oh, great. And where can we find you online on Instagram? I
1: am, I am Hugh PhD, H-U-G-H, PhD on Instagram. Um, that's pretty much where I am online at this point. <laughs> And yeah, so that's pretty much where I am at this point. I probably need to figure out some additional mechanisms for all those things, but that's where I am, at least um, in this world right now.
0: Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I uh, appreciate you. And I think some people have been blessed by this conversation. Hopefully, it helps some people open some doors. Hugh uh-huh. Love, PhD, y'all. Have a great day. Have a great day important conversation and a a good one too uh dr hugh love phd i um, am so grateful for dr love stopping by and sharing his knowledge and wisdom with us um i hope those of you who listened and uh Uh, in need uh, are leaving with information that can help you manage your mental health a little better uh, to be more comfortable with the process of therapy and the potential benefits uh, that it can provide uh, to the healing of trauma or in the investigation and navigation of uh, the events and challenges in our lives. With some specificity, I want to reach out to uh, my brothers and sisters in the African-American community uh, and specifically brothers. Um, It is not weakness to show emotion. It is not weakness to understand that the same way you take care of and you build up uh, your body and that your body sometimes doesn't feel well or it's ill from uh, varying reasons. The same thing is true of our mental health. It's okay to show emotion. It's okay to have some concerns and some issues and to need somebody to talk about it with and you know our boys aren't always the best sources of information our boys can always tell us what we need to hear in order to look at issues and concerns and challenges in our life uh, through a different lens a lens that will provide much better focus on what's really going on so I urge us all to be open to therapy to be open to conversation and most importantly to be open to being vulnerable because in being vulnerable you show your humanity and in being human you give yourself an opportunity to heal to grow and to participate in creation uh, in the ways that God intended us to Uh, I encourage each of us also to be gentle with ourselves, to look in the mirror and to meet ourselves, to embrace ourselves, to check ourselves when we're being less than the highest selves that we can be, and ultimately to forgive and to love ourselves, both in spite of and because of our humanity. And then I hope that we can learn to see that same humanity in other people, and have the same capacity to be gentle with and to be understanding of other human beings, their frailty, their fears, their imperfections, and yes, ultimately to love them and I hope that we can love ourselves and them together equally and lovingly. It's so important, y'all. And one last thing I want to share. As human beings, it's part of what makes us wonderful, but it's also part of what screws us up. What am I talking about? This absolute desire and need to know everything and to understand everything. I wonder sometimes if that's where that story in the Bible about the garden and the fruit from the tree of life and came from. That once that step was taken to feel this need to know everything about everything and to understand everything. I wonder if that is the sin. That is the thing that keeps us separated, not only from God, but from each other. What's my point? Where am I going? The point is this. I don't understand every little intricacy of DNA, or where it came from, or why it exists, or how it was originally created. I do know that it plays a very significant role in the development of every living thing on this planet. But because I don't understand the intricacies of it, that does not diminish the fact that I love and I am grateful for the beautiful plants and trees that it leads to creating, to the wildlife that exists as a result of it, to you and to me and all the things in our behavior and who we are that it influences I can appreciate it without understanding it. I can love it without understanding it. And indeed, I do coexist with it without understanding it. So if that's true of that and so many other things, it is true of humanity. We don't have to understand everything about each other in order to still celebrate and love one another. That's what I'm talking about. Once again, I want to thank you guys for joining us today. I want to thank you for joining me every time that you do because you have so many other choices you could make, but you choose to spend some time with us, and I'm appreciative for it. Please remember to follow the podcast on social media, Nothing to Lose But Yourself, on Instagram and on Twitter, and Ricky Day, R-I-C-K-Y-D-A-Y, on Instagram and on Twitter. Whatever you're doing, wherever you're doing it, I hope that you continue to have an amazing day, You have an amazing week, an amazing year, an amazing life. But right now, we're in this moment together. So let's make this moment as amazing as possible. Have an amazing week. I love y'all. Now go love yourself.